Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation of any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. On today's episode, we have Annie Duke. Annie is a now retired title-winning poker player and has used the experience from playing poker and her background studying psychology at University of Pennsylvania to approach the topic of decision-making. Um, is, I don't know if you remember, but on, on, during our first interview, the first question that we, we, or the first thing that we talked about is why was thinking probability so important? And you, you explained to us why was that so, such a key component of decision making. Um, but we keep pondering on the challenges of what thinking probabilities mean and how much people have issues adopt, adopting uh, a probabilistic mindset, actually, to the point that whenever you mention the word probability, it puts people off. And even people that are either managing companies or managing teams or dealing with uncertainty, whenever you kind of push them to give you an answer in terms of probabilities, they just don't seem to be able to cope with it. So the first question is about how can you, how can you help people to think about probabilities? Is, is it something that you can improve? Or if you were not taught this in school, then it's, it's gone. Yeah, I, I, that's a that's a really good question, and I want to kind of take two different paths to answer it, if that's okay. Um, I think one, you need to kind of ground what really does probability mean in a way where you're sort of removing it from the abstraction of math and grounding it in what the math is actually supposed to describe. So, you know, the difference between saying to somebody two plus two is four and showing them two apples and two apples and putting them together and saying, this is what that is describing. So I think that that's one piece and I'll talk about that a, a little bit. And then the other piece I think is that I think that you really have to show people why. Why is it actually really important to think about uh, things in terms of probability and then to actually express that in a really precise way. and if you don't show them the case for why this is gonna make their, their decision-making better, why it's gonna improve the quality of their team conversations, I don't know that they're gonna sort of get through that, that phobia about probability. And then actually I would add a third thing, which is I think you need to show people the way that they can get better at it without pain. So let me kind of walk, walk through those a little bit. So, so the first thing is I think that you need to let people know, like what is a probability expressing? And, and there's interesting research that shows that if you just tell people, think about how many times you'd expect it to happen out of 100, that they're actually much better with that than they are with saying, uh, I think it's gonna happen 60% of the time. <laughs> so 
if you just say, how many times out of 100 would you expect to see this result? Like, if I flipped a coin, how many times out of 100 do you think it would land heads? Yeah. Um, they're much better at saying, oh, I think it would happen 50 times out of 100 than saying 50%. So I think if you can start to use some plain language to get people to really imagine what is the thing that the probability is supposed to be describing for me? And it has to do with frequency, really, right? Like if I were to imagine that I sort of did this thing over and over again, right? I went on this sales call. How many times out of 100 that I made this same sales call do I think that I would actually close the sale? Understanding that there's all sorts of things that I can't control, like maybe the person is in a bad mood or the wrong person came in before me or you know, whatever it is, like sort of imagine all of that stuff and then think about how many times out of 100 that would happen and then just convert that. And then I think it becomes less of an abstraction. Mm. That's kind of number one. Number two on that sort of describing what it is is that I think that people get very afraid of what feels like a lot of precision. So mm. we're taught in math that there are right answers and wrong answers, right? There's two plus two equals four, that's correct. And two plus two equals 100, which is wrong. Mm -hmm. So I think that when you ask people to tell you uh, what, you know, what, what is the likelihood that something is gonna happen, they feel like they're in two plus two equals foreign land. Mm. But that's not actually where they are. They're in, tell me what kind of your best guess of this is. And what you think that sort of, the, your, if you had to really think like, what, what would be your best guess about how often this would occur? Um, and you let them know that this isn't a right or wrong thing. This is a, how can we sort of get a clearer view of the future? So, so in the book, I talk about this idea that if you had the perfect decision tool, it would be a crystal ball. Mm -hmm. well, obviously, if I had a crystal ball, I would know for sure what was gonna happen in the future. But we don't have a crystal ball. And so what we're trying to do is, is take a crystal ball that's a kind of like dirty and cloudy and you can't see anything in it and see, can we sort of wipe it off a little bit? Can we get a little bit of a view into the future? And the better we are at sort of shining up that, that crystal ball, uh, sort of the better the view of the future and that that's actually gonna get us a long way. So I'm not so worried that it's not going to happen exactly 60% of the time. So much as I would like you to be thinking about it and sort of eliminating possibilities from the range of things that could occur. And in fact, in order to help you with that, I'm gonna allow you to offer me a range, which gets us out of the world of right and wrong. So, you know, in that same sense of if I showed you a jelly bean jar and I said, how many jelly beans are in it? It's a lot harder for you to say exactly 364 than it is for you to say, well, I think it's between, somewhere between 200 and 500. And if I give you that leeway to sort of express your uncertainty around it, then I think that you're much more willing to start sort of talking in this way, which are really just estimates. Because when we're dealing with uncertainty, it's true that sometimes probabilities just have to do with risk. In other words, we have all the information we need and we can determine exactly what the probability is, like a coin flip. But for most people, for most decisions, we're making subjective judgments. We don't have all the information we need to know to know, because we're not omniscient, how often am I going to close that sale? Mm. So if I say to you, how often do you think you're going to close the sale? And then give me a lower bound and an upper bound to that probability. That kind of, I think, gets people comfortable with it because you're signaling to them that I don't think this is something that you're necessarily going to be 
write about. And that's not the expectation. We're not sitting in two plus two equals four land. Yeah. And I, once you sort of allow people that, you know, no, this is a way for you to express your uncertainty, actually. It's kind of the best way for you to express your uncertainty. Yeah. Um, then the, the last piece on this part is that I think that people, when they do feel like there's like a right and wrong answer, they have an unwillingness to guess. And very often that unwillingness to guess is, is coming from this idea that, well, I don't know what the right answer is. And so therefore I do, I'm not comfortable telling you anything. Hmm. So what, what I really try to get across to people is that there, there we, we have this term called educated guess mm -hmm. and that you should really think about all your guesses as educated guesses, because there's almost nothing that you could be thinking about or guessing about that you don't know anything about. So, uh, the example I give is, uh, you know, I'll do this with you, actually. Um, okay, I'm a little so, bit nervous now. No, no. So this is easy. So Juan, I, you can't, obviously, my, you're looking at me on a computer, so you can't see the desk that my computer is on, right? Yeah. Right. So how much does my desk weigh? Uh, I'm going to say uh, six kilos. Right. So why didn't you guess 10,000 kilos? Yeah, because that would be an astronomical figure that would be impossible for you to have at home and yeah. Right. It would be why, didn't you guess, why didn't you guess one kilo? Um, it seems that that one kilo would be just a very low number for us. That's right. Maybe. So what, what I just exposed is that here is something that you cannot see. You're, you're not yeah. in my house, you're, right? You, you haven't seen what my computer is sitting on. You, you, yeah. I told you it's a desk. So that's it. But you could actually give a pretty good answer to that, even though you haven't seen it. And that, that's kind of what I try to get across to people is that these kinds of guesses, they're, they're always educated guesses because there's almost nothing that you don't know anything about. And that by forcing yourself to go through the process of actually making these estimates, what you're doing is you're putting more educated in your guess um, for two reasons. One is you might go look something up. Right, like you could go Google, like what's the average weight of a desk, right? That would yeah. be very helpful to you. Or you might, uh, or in the case of trying to make an estimate, for example, of what's the probability I close a sale, you might go get feedback from other people where you can get other people's perspectives that may actually help you. Maybe they've had experience with this customer before, or customers that are similar, that would help you actually refine those, those guesses and put more educated into them. And when I think about what's the goal of decision-making, uh, it's really that piece, that educated piece. Because we don't really have control over the luck element. We have a lot of control over the informational element. And if we can get more educated into the gas, we'd be a lot better off. So, so that's kind of on the, how can we allow people to kind of understand what is it that the guess really is? And, and really let them know, this is what it's describing. It's how many times out of 100. And this is kind of uh, what you're trying to accomplish is figure out how much do you know? Right. What, what is my level of uncertainty here? And you're sort of trying to explore that. Um, so, yeah. So in, in, I mean, in the book, you talk about the importance of providing a range. And you mentioned as well that it doesn't really matter whether or not the answer lies, lies within the range, provided that, that range is representing something that is logical and real. You say, I think that you gave the answer, the, 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 you used the example of a two plus two. Um, it doesn't really help you say, well, it goes from minus infinity to infinity, that's not a range that it's useful. You don't, do, you don't get anything out of it. That was, is the, the other tool that you mentioned is the 
Archer's mind. Yeah. Um, does that help with getting people to understand and think about probabilities in a better kind of framework? Yeah, I, I think so. So yeah, so that's a, that's a so so let me kind of explain what you just said because I think that that's a just a really good point, and I, I I appreciate you bringing that up to me. Thank you. So what I say is that look, when you're offering a range, you want the range to properly reflect what your uncertainty about the situation is. So no more, no less. So the idea is that if my goal is that when I set a range, I always want to make sure that the correct answer lies within. That's not particularly informative. So I could say two plus two equals four um, is going to be the sort of a precise answer. And in this particular case, there's not a lot of uncertainty around there. So that would actually be my range from four to four. Um, and then you can tell me whether that's correct or not. But I, if I wanted to sort of game that system, I could say two plus two equals in negative infinity to positive infinity. And here's the thing, I'm going to get that right. Hmm. But I haven't really done anybody any use because I haven't properly reflected my knowledge. So we can imagine that things that we, there, there's two reasons why your range might be wide. M one might be that it's just a really volatile system. Hmm. So, um, if I thought about a 10-sided dice and I said, what is it going to roll on the next roll? I would say one to 10, right? So my range would include the whole thing. And, and that's literally not because I don't know a lot about the, the die. It's that it's just, there's just a why, you know, I don't, it's all luck. I have no control over which it's going to roll on the next one. But so setting those things aside, when we're dealing with imperfect information, the reason why your range would be wide is that you know more or less about the situation. So... Uh, as an example, if I were to estimate the population of your hometown, my mm -hmm. range would be really wide because I actually don't know where you, I don't know a lot about it. I don't know where you were born. Mm -hmm. So my range probably would be, I mean, if I think about where you, you know, maybe you were born because I don't, I have no idea where you were born. Yeah. Um, 300 to 10 million. I mean, I'd have to have that range because I'm trying to reflect to you that I don't even know what town you were born in. Mm. Now, if I were to, um, if you told me what town you were born in, now my range would narrow because now I would know more, right? Yeah. We, can, we can continue, we can do that, right? So, um, and then if I looked it up, obviously my range would become very narrow because then I would have closed the information gap. So what you're trying to do with these ranges is actually properly reflect what your state of knowledge is about it. So when I offer you a range, what's really good about that is I'm telling you how certain I am. In other words, what is my state of knowledge? And I'm asking you, inherent in that is I'm asking you a question, which is, do you know something that would help me narrow this range? So the way that I think about that is this is really what I call the archer's mindset, which is an, a, a I sort of came to this thought through a, a podcast that I had done with Peter Atia, who's very into archery, and he, he got me sort of thinking about this. And when I think about archery, the idea is that you get points not just for hitting a bullseye, you get points for kind of hitting anywhere on the target. So that the first piece of the archer's mindset is realizing that it's useful to just to try to hit the bullseye even if you miss. That there's a lot of use in trying to get it on the target because if you can get that error on the target, you will still score points. It's like you get credit for showing your work in this case. And then when we talk about those ranges that you're setting, what you're really doing is setting the size of the target. Yeah. So for things that you know a lot about, the target would be all bullseye. 
-hmm. For things that I know very little about, it would be a very wide target. And that it's useful to sort of define the size of the target and then see, and then you're always sort of aiming at the bullseye. And what Peter Atia points out, which I think is really valuable, is that it, the aiming at the bullseye obviously increases the chances that you're going to hit the bullseye. Mm -hmm. And it also allows you to get feedback because you shoot the arrow, you're trying to hit the bullseye, and then the arrow lands somewhere. And you can actually now close that feedback loop to how were you aiming, what were your sights, that kind of thing. And that actually allows you to get better and better as you go along at training your sights on that bullseye because the world will start to give you feedback about how good your aim was. Yeah. So, so this act of aiming is actually really important. And then the act of, of defining the target size is also really important. So many of the concepts that you mentioned in, in your book, um, many of the tools that you, that you are explaining in your book um, seem very, from, from, a, from a theoretical point of view, seem simple, but somehow in practice, they become difficult to implement. And I think that that's one of the main obstacles. So um, I'll, I'll mention two examples. Um, one thing that we discussed in our pre uh, previous conversation was uh, the use of base rates. Base rates are actually very important in my team's process, uh, but somehow the, getting the base rates or understanding what the right base rate is becomes difficult. And then the psychological part of combining that outside view with your inside view gets very, very muddy. And the other one that caught my attention, um, which is something that we try to do as well and in practice somehow gets difficult, it's primordiums. I'm just using two examples. And the primordium seems to be quite straightforward. Um, but somehow people tend to do it people don't tend to get it very right. And actually, um, I think that Gary Klein, was Gary Klein who uh, came up with the concept of, I think he wrote a paper in February of 2019, which was, uh, which is called uh, The Misuse of Premortem, Premortem on, on Wall Street. And actually he went on a podcast and explained a little bit about it. So what, what do you think that is and how, how can you get better at it? That's such a good question. So I, I think that a lot of this has to do with, um, what is the discovery process? So I think that what you're pointing out is that when you go and look up at a base, a base rate, uh, there's always a question of what's the reference class. Mm -hmm. So the way that I define a base rate in the, in the book is uh, how often does something happen in a situation similar to yours? Mm -hmm. I think that I'm, I'm trying to put this in very plain language, obviously. Yeah. So it's that situation similar to yours thing that's, that's a little bit problematic, mm -hmm. right? Because obviously we can data mine, right? And we can, we can, probably find a reference class that's going to sort of support our point of view. And we can make arguments about what that reference class is. Um, so I'll address this, this first, which is when you are thinking about entering into a decision, it's incredibly helpful to expose as much as you possibly can when there's dispersion in your view of, for example, what the base rate might be. So the reason why you would go seek out a base rate is that you're trying to get more educated into your guess. Mm. So really when I say, oh, you could go Google up, like what's the average weight of a table? I'm really saying you're, you, go look at the base rate. I mean, it's similar to a base rate, right? Like how, how much the tables generally weigh. Um, if I wanted to know uh, how often am I gonna close a sale, it would be really helpful for me to know within whatever the situation that I'm in, how often in general the sales like that get closed. Now, I obviously have some skill elements. I may, th I may think I'm a great salesman, or I may think that my product is great, or I may think I'm a great salesman, but my product isn't so good, or I may think that I'm not a great salesperson, and 
my product isn't so great or whatever. And I can sort of adjust those things to the base rate and sort of toggle up and down. But I want to be in within the, the sort of gravitational pull of the, the base rate, right? So this is why we want to go get them. But it, you do need to have a, a real way to incorporate those things in. So this is where I kind of get into this idea that you have to have more than one point of view in the conversation. And you must expose those points of view into the conversation. And this is, I think, where we really start to fall down is that we tend to have these conversations as a team. Meaning we come in the room and we say, all right, we're trying to think about this. Like, let's talk about what the base rate is. Or maybe one person has looked at, up the base rate and they're now arguing for it in front of the group. And then what's happening is that you're, as a group, you're sort of entering into this hive mind, right? Like this group thing where um, people, you're really not finding out what the different points of view about sort of how to interpret that base rate or how to incorporate it into your decision process might be. So one of the very strong recommendations that I make in this book is that you have to do pre-work. In other words, if I've got five people on a team and I want to come in and have a discussion about, about how to apply the base rate and then merge it with the inside view, which is sort of your own skills and, and your own perceptions, then I have to actually access those five different perspectives. And when we have these conversations as a group, we don't access those five different perspectives. Hmm. So what I would rather do is say, we're considering this, can everybody offer up what they believe the base rate to be? And then, uh, off, you know, in this case, this would be maybe one of the ways that you might be eliciting feedback. And then say, what are the things that you, you know, what do you think that our probability is? If it differs from the base rate, give a rationale as to why. Hmm. And have everybody do that separately. Now what happens is you're going to maximally expose the dispersion on the team. And you can have people come into the room and convey why they have a different base rate than somebody else or why they have the same base rate but then their probability for our team's decision is different so you both think that um you know it's going to win at a rate of 37 percent uh in terms of the base rate but maybe you think um that we're going to win 42 percent of the time and i think we're going to win 50 percent of the time and now we can sort of find out that we we have that difference in the way that we're thinking about it and we can see what our rationale is and then basically what i can do is i can have you convey your reasons for that and i can convey my reasons for that now i use the word convey really intentionally because mostly what we're trying to do is convince in other words i'm trying to convince you that i'm right you're trying to mm. convince me that you're right and that's actually really not useful that's how we end up with this idea that we're supposed to always be agreeing with each other all the time which is where we get into really big trouble and instead, if you're just conveying to me why you believe what you do, and I'm conveying to you why I believe what I do, and then if we want, we could update our forecast at the end of that process, generally, you're going to surface more of this information. And what's going to happen is all of those different points of view are going to discipline each other. Because when two people who are really well-informed and really smart have different ideas of what's true of the world, generally, it's generally going to be the case that the truth is going to lie somewhere in between the two of them. And you would like to expose that. You want to get that cognitive dispersion to come to the surface. As to the pre-mortem part, again, if you do those pre-mortems in a room, in a team setting, which is one of the things that Gary Klein pointed out, when you just say, okay, let's figure out why we might lose, and you're doing this in a group setting, mm -hmm. um, you're probably not going to get very good information out of the team for all sorts of reasons. 
teams like to linger on agreement. That's sort of what part makes them feel like they're part of the team. Mm. Um, teams don't like to disagree with leadership. They don't like to disagree with subject matter experts, as an example. Mm. Um, they, it's very easy for people to rationalize away reasons that you might fail. So the first thing, and, and I just sort of do this in a, you know, there's two things that I do that where I adapt the premortem from Gary Klein and I add different layers to them. Mm. The first is that I specifically ask people to divide the reasons for failure into to luck and skill, meaning mm. what are the things that aren't going to be in your control that are going to cause failure? And what are the things that are going to be due to your own decision making that will cause failure? The reason that I do that, and I do the same thing when somebody does a backcast, which is we succeeded and let's look back, is that on the success side, people tend to focus on the, the decisions that they would make that would allow them to succeed. And on the failure side, people tend to focus on the things that are out of their control mm. that will cause them to fail. So I really make them balance those two columns out because they, they're balanced in actual real life. And I also make them do a probability forecast of those which then allows you to understand like how big a danger is it. But then on top of that, I add in this extra layer of it's always done as pre-work. In mm. other words, I send it to everybody on the team and I say, here's the pre-mortem. Everybody put up to, up to five reasons. You don't have to put five, but up to five reasons that we're going to fail because of our own decision-making up to five reasons we're going to fail because of skill, give a probability forecast. And then if you want, write a rationale for any of those reasons. Mm. And that actually allows all of that stuff to get exposed because the whole point of a premortem is to sort of on your own get you to the outside view. In other words, to think about it in a way that you don't naturally do. You know, we naturally tend to think about success. Mm. We don't naturally tend to think about the ways that we might fail. And so if we can do that, we can sort of get outside of our own perspective and start to see things a little bit more objectively. Well, you can put that on steroids if you get five people doing that independently. Hmm. So that's, that's very interesting. So one of the things that when I was reading the book, um, I think that you, you do as an exercise to try to get people to talk about or think about probabilities. And it's an easy way to lay down the path is when you are discussing decision trees and you say there are three Ps. Uh, you need to for the set of the principles that you that you need to get uh, across the payoffs and then the probabilities. But you don't go from principal payoffs to probabilities in percentage numbers right away. You introduce an in between, which is the the list of words that uh, Michael Mabusin um, um, put together to communicate some sort of probabilistic thinking, the likelihood of an event happening, and. And then you make the introduction um, uh, to the to the to the to the actual factual numbers. Um, and when I was reading that section before going into the numbers, I was kind of thinking, and that's something that you point out in the book that the problem with words is that it it gets words get uh, very vague and they mean different things for different people. And you make the uh, or you you recall that example of uh, President Kennedy's uh, Bay of Pigs um, issue. And I don't know if you have read a book called War, War and Chance by Jeffrey uh, Friedman. That is so hilarious. Are you have it there? Okay. Like literally, I'm not kidding. It's literally sitting right next to me. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've, you've read it yet, but they, they, he, he actually... Yeah, no, I, I had it last summer. I got it last summer. Okay, cool. So, um, because 
what, what got me thinking is that the so you, you mentioned the, the Bay of Peak example, um, which is also made uh, the um, Jeffrey Friedman also makes a reference to it in the book, but he also makes the point of he, he brings an anecdote of President Obama. And when he's trying to decide whether or not to attack the, the compound where the CIA believed that uh, bin Laden was uh, hiding and how um, he, he conveyed the message that in order to make a decision, there needed to be um, so, some sort of probabilistic um, thinking behind it. And when he asked the room, dif very different people came up with very different percentage um, assignments to the, to the outcome. So some people were very close to 80 to 90% sure that Bin Laden was there. Some more people were in the 50 to 60%. Some more people were as low as 30 to 40% to the point that I think that in an interview, he actually said that the exercise as a whole was not very useful for him to make a decision. And that was quite surprising to me because one would think that when you're moving away from how vague words are into numbers, even if those numbers represent uncertainty, then that should narrow, help you to narrow, round, narrow down the, the issue. But that, wasn't not, that was not the case. And I think that, that that might happen a lot when you're trying to, even when you're trying to frame it in percentages or even numbers. So how do you overcome that? Yeah, so I think it has to do with a couple of things. One is, once you expose the dispersion, what are you doing with it? And second of all is, what do you think the goal of the conversation is? So, so let me address the first one. When I discover that the dispersion is there, then what I ask each person to do, like generally people will sort of be grouped together, right? So here, there, here are people who think that the, the probability range is pretty low. Um, so, you know, th there's three people in the room. One of them says 25%, another says 30%, another says 32%, whatever. So these are the people who are sort of in the, the a third range. Then there's the people who are sitting around 50-50. And then there's the people who are in the higher range. So I sort of figure out where are these clusters occurring. And then what I do is I ask each of them, um, okay, I, someone please volunteer to represent the group that thinks it's lower. Can you please offer up your rationale for that? So they then will convey their rationale. And then I'll say to the other people, the, everybody's just listening at this point. I say to the other people that are in that lower group, do you have anything to add? So Juan, if you were, if you were the representative, you would give your rationale and then I might ask somebody else, you know, I might say, Emily, do you have something to add to what Juan said? And then she can add something if she feels like there's some rationale that you haven't covered that, that she was thinking about. And then I say to the other people in the room, do you, do you feel that you satisfactorily understand the rationale? Now notice, I'm not saying, do you think they're wrong? Tell them why they're wrong. I'm saying just, tell me if you understand why they got to this conclusion. And if the answer is no, they can query, right? That, again, not attack, they can just query and say, I didn't understand this point. And I literally do that with all three of the, all three of the groups. So then we just rinse and repeat. After that's done, I say, everybody take out a piece of paper. If you'd like to update your probability, do so now. Write down what your new probability is. In other words, what your posterior probability is having now heard all of this information. Everybody then writes down their posterior probabilities and then we, we figure out what those are. And then here's the thing. Dis most decisions suffer from consensus. <laughs> because generally, 
it's not actually consensus. It's just making you feel better because the people don't actually, they haven't actually agreed with each other. It's just some people are like, okay, I give in. Right. So everybody's going to walk away. If you, if, if the room comes out and they say, we've all agreed on this, it's just not true. They haven't agreed on it. So there's going to be somebody who in the end is going to be responsible for the decision. And the goal is for that person to be as informed as possible, but to allow the dispersion to remain. Because otherwise what happens is that you're suppressing how much people are willing to tell you why they disagree. You're suppressing their, their ability to continue to disagree, which is totally fine. And in fact, you want that because the whole point is to have a collision like in the public square of different points of view. So, um, and then when it doesn't work out, that person's going to say, I told you so, because they're going to have felt forced to bend toward what the consensus of the group is. So in the end, maybe in this case, it's Obama's decision. So you go around and you sort of divide people up in low, medium, and high, let them express all of this, allow them to write down a posterior probability. Obama has now heard all of the reasoning, every last bit of it, that's gone into what, why people's rationales are what they are. And then he's now going to make the best informed decision possible because he's heard all of the perspectives. Hmm. So first of all, the goal of conversation is not to convince, it's to convey. And I think that we really need to get that into our process. It's incredibly hmm. important. And then the second thing is that the goal of conversation is not to reach agreement. Hmm. It is to become informed. That is a really different way to think about things, right? I don't think that my team needs to all agree with each other. I think my team needs to be informed. Now, one of the really wonderful things about this is that it's not just the decision maker who's becoming educated in that process. Every single person in the room who's listening in on that conversation is now becoming a more educated person because you're maximizing people's ability to say why they think what they do. You're maximizing how much cognitive dispersion you're getting to see. You're maximizing the number of different perspectives that you're gonna have. And here's the really important thing, particularly when you get a bunch of subject matter experts in the room, is as Phil Tetlock points out, subject matter experts really dig very deep trenches because they have incredibly strong models of the world. And as he would say, they're very hedgehoggy. This one big idea, this is the way that I look at the world. And that's very, very inside view. And we know that people do better when they become more like a fox in terms of their cognitive style, meaning that they're looking at things from all sorts of different perspectives and different angles, or as Scott Page would say, the more mental models that you're applying to a problem, the more clearly you can see the problem and you're generally gonna come up with a better solution. That's really Scott Page's point. So how are you creating that particular, you know, is you're allowing these different mental models to collide in the room. You're allowing these different perspectives to collide in the room and, and nobody needs to end up agreeing with each other in the end. The decision maker mm. needs to be informed. Mm. That's, that's really interesting. Um, one, one, so many, many of the tools you walk us through in the book seem very suitable for long-term planning. Maybe when you have maybe a lot of time um, or you're dealing with a very long-term project or um, your time frame is long. But which of the tools that you mentioned do you think are best to deal with an environment when you are under a lot of time pressure and you are dealing with a lot of volatility and uncertainty? Yes. Yeah, so, so first of all, let me say that obviously 
obviously there's certain decisions where you can take a lot of time and you can go through a very robust version of this process. But this type of thinking, like really learning this type of thinking where you're mapping out the possibilities, you're thinking about what the payoffs are, what the probabilities of those things are, you're actually, you're actually explicitly saying, this is what I think that I would expect the world to unfold as if I choose a different option, if I choose a particular option. Um, you can do a pretty quick and skinny version of that in anything. That's what I'm essentially doing in poker, right? And this is obviously really high vol. It's um, super, you know, lots of uncertainty and it's really fast. So when I'm thinking about a hand, so, you know, let's say that in, in Texas Hold'em, you know, you get dealt two cards and then three cards come down in the middle. So there's 52 cards in a deck, so we can figure out pretty easily how many cards I don't know about. I know the two in my hand and the three on the board, that's five, 52 minus five is 47. There are 47 cards that I have not laid eyes on. What that means is that all 47 of those cards are a possibility to, to be dealt on the very next card. Now, when I'm thinking about a hand, I'm doing lots of things. I'm trying to assign probabilities to what I think my opponent's hand is. I'm trying to think about how my opponent might react to those hands, to a variety of different hands, and I'm making predictions about that. And then I'm also thinking for myself a lot of if-then statements. If a card comes down on the next deal, on the next round, what are the things that I think that I would do about it? How might it change my hand? How might it change their hand? What are the moves that I would want to make under those circumstances? Now, am I having to plan for 47 different futures? No, because I can group them. I can chunk them together. So for example, if there's two clubs on the board, I can put all the clubs into a category. Because mm -hmm. if there's three clubs on the board, a flush is possible, as an example. So I can put all clubs into a category. Maybe I put all face cards into a category, right? So, and then, and then we, we actually, in poker, we talk about a category called a blank. And a blank is something that is incredibly unlikely to change the state of the world. So an example would be if the board has an ace, the king, and a queen on it, if a two hits on the next card, it doesn't really change anything. I'm not, literally, I'm changing nothing about what I think the other player has or whatever. So there's this whole category of cards that I would call a blank. So I can get them into these larger categories, but I'm still planning for maybe between three and seven possible futures. And I'm doing that all really fast. But the only reason why I can do that is because I understand what a full blown out process would look like. And then while I'm making those sort of very quick calculations in my head, I'm making note of what my expectations are. And then when the world goes against my expectations, I save it for later to then go through a pretty robust process with people that I might be wanting to talk the hand through with. So mm -hmm. I can save it for later. Or if I know that I'm in a particularly, I'm in a situation where I'm really having trouble figuring out what the best option is in the moment, I'll also make note of that and I will save it for later to go talk about later. So the fact is, look, does my process lose fidelity when I'm in a high volatility, you know, very fast acting environment? Sure, I mean, I can't go through the whole shebang, but it's a lot better off for me, for me having this kind of way that I, I might think about the world because I'm doing that and other people aren't, right? Mm -hmm. Other people aren't even necessarily thinking about what are the different ways in which the board might change 
-hmm. the next card? And how can I think about how I would react to those in advance? I just as an example, right? Like a simple thing like that. Um, a lot of people get very caught up in their own hand and they don't think about their hand relative to the other person's and how the other person might react to their hand and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. So, so uh, look, this is one of those things where doing something is pretty much always better than doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And then you save it for later when you have more time. That being said, there are many, many, many different ways that you can think about a decision where you can really understand when is it necessary to speed up? I mean, when is it necessary to slow down and when could I go fast? Because mostly it's interesting. Like as you kind of pointed out, I'm, I'm suggesting this, this pretty robust process for thinking through decisions. But then I say, but now that I've got you there, mostly I want you to speed your decision making up. Mm -hmm. But you have to understand what a big blown out process would look like before you could even understand when am I supposed to speed up and when am I supposed to slow down? Because I personally think time is super valuable and that you should be actually saving a lot of time, mostly. Yeah. So one of the most interesting passages in the book, for me, in my opinion, is when you make the point that outcomes are only informative when they are unexpected, as this means you fail to account for that possible future scenario. Um, that sounds really counterintuitive um, somehow. C can you please elabor elaborate on why this can be so powerful? Yeah, so, okay. We, we have all of these problems with, once we know an outcome, it really overshadows our ability to be able to, to sort of de derive what the decision quality is. So, uh, you know, in, in thinking in bets, obviously, I open with this Pete Carroll example, um, where Pete Carroll makes a call at the end of a game that doesn't work out. He, he, it actually, it's a ball that gets intercepted. And still, five years later, everybody, you know, when I, when I put that video up, everybody groans and says, ah, the worst <laughs> decision in Super Bowl history. Like, immediately, it's what comes out of people's mouths. And the interesting thing for me is that I actually know the analysis of that play. And the analysis of that at that 2015 Super Bowl play actually suggests that it was quite a good decision. And yet when I watch the video, I feel it's bad. Mm. Now I can, I can overcome it, mm. but I, I can feel it's bad. Uh, another example that I've been talking about recently of like why outcomes sort of really kind of hide the decision, like hide the decision quality from ourselves. Cause we like, we just interpret it. You might, Michael Mobison actually talks about once you have an outcome, there's a, there's a part of your brain that which is called the interpreter. And it just goes to work trying to make the world make sense, trying to make the outcome make sense. And you sort of can't shut it off, right? So <laughs> the example I give actually uh, in this book is um, talking about in America, the, the national kind of fever dream that's occurred over Hillary Clinton's strategy in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. So these are three states that were, I think the total vote count was like 60 to 80,000 votes across all three states that she lost by. Um, and they turned out to be super crucial. So she lost these three states. That's essentially what lost her the election. So, you know, over the past three and a half years, um, I've heard nothing but, you know, this was a ridiculous decision and everybody knows it and her it was the worst run campaign ever. And, you know, just all sorts of things about basically analyzing the decision quality. 
um, as it relates to those three states. So I, as I was writing the book, you know, actually this, this is what happens to me a lot with, with writing books. Before I ever even thought I was gonna write this book, um, I sort of started noticing this and I was very confused because I was thinking, I, I don't, I feel like I don't remember people talking about this beforehand. I just sort of had this like, mm, I'm gonna go check. So I Googled Clinton, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. I think that was my Google search. I might've put in 2016, I can't remember. And a gazillion articles come up about how ridiculous her campaign strategy was. I mean, with a similar tenor to what an idiot Pete Carroll of the Seahawks was for calling a pass play. Mm -hmm. I mean, it felt very similar. And it was all sorts of not just, that was so horrible, what a mistake. But when you listen to people talk about it, it was, and everybody knew it. And wasn't she dumb? Because everybody knew that this was so bad. But the weird thing about the articles is that the very first article that I could find that's really hypercritical was uh, November 9th, 2016, which happens to be weirdly the day after the election. I found two articles that were hypercritical of Trump for campaigning in Pennsylvania. So I'm not sure how those two worlds exist together. Um, and that was from before the election. And then there was one article in the Atlantic, which was sort of saying, um, Trump is campaigning in, in Pennsylvania. Is he like outflanking Clinton? Um, you know, cause she, she was spending a lot of time in like Florida and Arizona and North Carolina and whatnot. Conclusion, no, she's so far ahead, you know, it's fine. So that was it. That was all I could find from before the election. So, you know, of course the problem is you have to put yourself into the state of knowledge that you were uh, prior to the election. Um, and there's nothing more crowdsourced as we can see now as America's in an election cycle as a, as a campaign. And so mm -hmm. if, if this was really common knowledge, there certainly would be an evidentiary record of it, for sure. We would be able to see it in the evidence, but there isn't. And, and obviously the problem is that there was a polling error, which you can't know until after the fact. That's, that's the whole problem with a polling error. And the polling error wasn't national. The national polls came out pretty exact. The polling error wasn't, uh, you know, specific to all states because Florida polled about right. And there was all these states where the polls came out sort of exactly where uh, the vote came out exactly where the polls said they were. And it happened that in these three states, there was, there, there was some sort of systemic error. So this then brings me to, so what is there to learn from a particular outcome? And the answer is if you're just looking at like win or lose, good or bad, not too much. Because we're going to try to make sense of the world in a way that two things are going to happen. We're going to, we're going to end up with a resulting problem where, where we're sort of assuming that because it turned out poorly, there must have been underlying poor decisions that were made, which is not necessarily the case. And we're going to end up with this problem of hindsight bias. We're going to say we should have known or we did know or all that stuff. And you can see that all kind of colliding in this, this Clinton example. But the Clinton example also shows us, okay, so how could we actually make it so that we could learn from... Um, experience. Well, I, as I told you, there was an evidentiary record. Yeah. Every single political observer and pundit and campaign strategist and so on and so forth was clearly writing a lot about this election and they were not writing this particular prediction. So therefore we know that this was unexpected. That is the thing that we know. 
So now we can learn something from that. This very mm. unexpected thing happened. It was these states ended up voting way off of the polls. Now we can learn something. Not mm -hmm. about whether the decision making was good or bad, but how can what can we learn about where mm -hmm. that error derived from so that we could repair that mm -hmm. as we go forward into new predictions. Mm -hmm. That's why unexpectedness is so incredibly important. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that I think that this really sort of expresses itself in a bad way in most organizations, even organizations that at least theoretically understand this problem. I think there's lots of organizations who want to be process oriented, but their ability to actually implement it is hard because of, because of sort of this gravitational pull of, of the outcome and how it pulls you down into these gravity wells. So let's say you're on an investment committee and I, I, obviously so you have some sort of prediction. Let's 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 make it simple in project, and you have a prediction of what the market is going to look like in two years when the when the project is done. Um, and so you've you've got some sort of idea of what the appraisal value is going to be at the end of two years. So and you've done this, you know, the committee's done this and whatnot. So at the end of two years, the project is finished, and it appraises fifty. So are you having a postmortem about? Are you having a meeting? Um, are you saying we're, we, we know we lost, that's not a problem, but we're going to talk about the model and where did the model go wrong and what didn't we see and all, you're going to use these very good words, but you're having a meeting. Is it a long meeting? Yeah. Do you, if, if you're the one who made the final decision, do you feel like you're really kind of under the microscope here? Yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. So now I'm going to flip this and I'm going to say, uh, you, have a model of the market, you invest in the same project. And at the end of two years, it appraises 15% higher than what your expectancy was. Are you having a really long meeting? Yeah. Well, um, probably not because it went really well. Right. You might be having, you're in a room, you're probably having champagne. Yeah, exactly. You think you're pretty, like everybody just thinks you're pretty smart, right? Do you feel yeah. like, do you feel like you're under the microscope if you were the decision maker? Um, maybe, but maybe in a good way. In a good way, exactly. In a good way. In a good way. Okay, so do you agree in theory that under allocation is just as big a problem as over allocation? Yes. Do you think that if it comes out uh, unexpectedly on the high side, or unexpectedly on the low side that you might want to be examining your model. So I know that if it came unexpectedly on the downside, the model will be under a lot of um, microscopic attention. Mm -hmm. If it's surprised on the upside, probably, probably we would think that the model was right. That's right. But it's not right. It's, I mean, it may be right. It, it could be a tail event. It's, it's, just it's literally just as right as if it comes out on the downside we don't know yeah so you have to go in and examine it because you also don't want to be under allocating your resources that's actually really bad for you mm. now the other thing you're doing is you're sending a message to the people on your team and the people who are the decision makers i'm telling you i care about process but i clearly don't care about process because if i cared about process then if it was unexpectedly on the downside, 
or unexpectedly on the upside, we would be having the exact same conversation about it. Because I care about under and over allocation. I just care about if, are, how, how good a forecaster are you? Are you seeing the world for what it's gonna develop as? And maybe it's just a tail event. And I'm gonna explore that on both sides, but we're gonna be talking about it either way. And essentially what would be really good is if I said, I would like to understand what do you think the probability of this is gonna occur? And sort of what's your upper and lower bound? And if, it, if it's sitting how far out toward the tails of what you think the distribution is, um, is far enough that we would then have a conversation about it. And I can decide that in advance. And it doesn't matter if it's out toward the right tail or out toward the left tail. I'm gonna have a conversation either way. If it's, if it's out of the range, we're definitely gonna have a conversation. Because there's all sorts of reasons, if you think about it, if it comes out toward the right tail, there could be, uh, for example, volatility that you didn't see. It usually that's gonna be a signal that you should be considering whether there's more risk in the investment than you actually thought mm -hmm. there was, mm -hmm. right? If it's way over out toward the tails or if it's beyond your range, there may be risk that you're missing. That would be something that you really, really, really wanna know, but we never find out because we don't really care about process, we care about outcomes. So you have to actually live this within your, your process in order to get yourself into a situation where you can actually become a really solid learner when it comes to this kind of stuff. So that's why unexpectedness is so important and that's the lesson of the Hillary Clinton example. There's an evidentiary record, we know what people expected. They did not expect, expect her to lose these three states. So if we, they did not expect her to lose these three states and there was no reason for her to expect that either, then we need to go back in and examine our models. We need to understand what happened with the polls so that, not so we can point fingers, but so that the next decision we make is gonna be better informed. And that's the way that you must live your life. Yeah. Because investing is such a, an outcome-driven um, endeavor. And Sometimes you might have a very strong process, but in the short to medium term, results are not coming through. How do you avoid resulting as in, because of the bad outcome, start to tweak and change process? Um, versus, so how, yes, how, how you avoid, is that, would that be resulting? Is that, so because the outcome is bad, then I think that there's something wrong with the model, then I go and change the model, but maybe it's not that the model was wrong, it's just I'm not, you're not allowing enough time for things to play out. Right. But how do, you, how do you know? So the thing is that you, you know, one of the things is that you can't know. I mean, you can certainly, there's certain things that you can do, which is you can get some sort of guess at what the end needs to be. And just commit in advance that you're not gonna make decisions until, until you have a large enough end. Mm -hmm. um, assuming it's within the band of what the model would predict. Now, if you're getting results that, that are outside of the range of what the model predicts, you should probably be going in and looking at your model, right? Like period. Mm -hmm. But if you get like three tail events in a row, but they're within the band of the model, I, I, you know, three is probably not a large enough sample size. So I think that one thing that we need to do is really think in advance about, you know, and this is the, these what part of what a pre-mortem is gonna do for you, is th think in advance about what, what, are the, what are the things, decisions that we might make in the future that are gonna cause us to feel like we should be, we're gonna engage in behavior that's gonna actually be bad for us. 
And one, one, one thing that you can identify there is that, well, we're going to get a bad result that's well within the range of results that we think that we should be getting. And off of a very small sample size, we're going to go around and mess around with the model, which we know is going to be bad. So the way that you can sort of figure, sort of see those things on the horizon is something, it's a, a decision tool that I call the Dr. Evil game. Mm. So basically with the Dr. Evil game, what you do is you imagine that Dr. Evil, the evil genius from Austrian Powers, has gotten a hold of your brain. Um, and what he's going to do is he's going to make sure that you make decisions uh, that will ensure failure. So I, I adapted this from um, a game called the Damien game from uh, Dan Egan, um, who was the first person who sort of posed to me, if you were imagine how you could guarantee that you fail, how would you do that? And then what I layered on what Dan Egan um, does, which I think is so valuable, uh, his, his exercise is so valuable, and then I tweaked it, um, is uh, that you can't get caught, Dr. Evil can't get caught. So, so what do I mean by that? Um, if you're gonna make really bad investment decisions, and all of a sudden you just like bet a huge amount on like a single high vol investment, everybody around you is gonna see that you did that. So Dr. Evil is going to get caught right away. It is going to make you fail, right? But, but Dr. Evil is going to get caught when you do that. So Dr. Evil is smarter than that. It's going to be, what, can, what are the decisions that I can make one make that will ensure failure in the long run, but any individual decision is going to be easily rationalized, mm -hmm. right? So, so here would be an example of a Dr. Evil decision. We know that in general, people will be, uh, pretty quick to the trigger on the trigger to close out winning positions and slower to close out losing positions. So we, we see this pattern in, in finance. Um, and the reason is that obviously it feels really good to turn a paper um, gain into a realized gain. So we like mm -hmm. to do that, but it doesn't feel so good to turn a paper loss into a realized loss. And we know the, from the work of, of Kahneman and Tversky that we see this behavior all the time, that you're willing to sort of take on gambles when you have a losing position, hoping that luck is gonna break your way, but you'll pay for the opportunity. You'll actually, so you'll pay to be able to keep the gamble on, on the losing side, but you'll pay to take the gamble off on the winning okay. side, right? So they've shown this pattern and we know that we see this pattern in traders. So Dr. Eve, that's a perfect Dr. Evil decision. Because I guarantee you on any visual, individual time where you close that winning position out, you're going to be able to give me a really solid rationale for why you're closing the position out. Mm -hmm. Or when you're allowing a losing position to ride, you're also going to be on that one time, you're going to be able to give me an amazing explanation about why you're doing that. One that I'm probably going to find pretty satisfying. So that's why we want to go through this Dr. Evil game and start thinking in advance about what are the ways in which our decision-making can fall apart. Because if I recognize that this is one of those ways that I could exhibit this pattern, now I can look for the pattern. In other words, now I can elevate it. So when you say I'm closing this position out and it's a winning position and you give me your rationale, I, could, I now know that, well, this is, this is one of Juan's Dr. Evil decisions, so I'm going to ask him more. Um, can you show me what let's look at sort of over the last month, what positions are you closing out? And what positions are you leaving on? And let's see if we're seeing this pattern. So it can elevate that for me to go and look for it, mm. right? So this is, this is allowing us to sort of in advance say, what are we really learning from the outcome? So, so we could see this with a model, right? 
we get a, a, a result that's really bad and we have the temptation to go in and tweak our model. And when I do that, I'm probably going to be able to justify it for you, like external to the result. I could probably say something to you. It's not that we lost this, you know, this one time. It's that I'm actually thinking I want to go in and look because now I'm sort of imagining that maybe I had this assumption wrong or this and that, separate and apart from this one result. Okay, right. <laughs> so I can recognize that that's going to be a Dr. Evil decision. So now I can actually query you further and I could say, were you thinking about this before you had the loss? What does this one loss really tell us? We decided in advance that we needed a certain N, a certain sample size before we were gonna make changes. We actually thought in advance, one of the things that we can do is a signposting exercise and we can say, we have this model of the world, but before we get any results from it, let's imagine what would have to be true of the world in order for us to go and, and look and tweak our model. So is this among those signposts that we already identified in, in in the past. Well, if it's not among those signposts, then I'm not touching the model right now. <laughs> yeah. Right. But on the flip side, what that also allows you to do is solve the, uh, the sort of mirror image problem, which is sometimes people get so entrenched in their model that when the world is changing around them, they don't change it. Yeah. Right. So this actually solves both of those problems because if you've done this really good signposting exercise, what would have to be true of the world? in order for me to go back in and sort of look at what I would change about my model, that also causes you to, to go look when you should, and it stops you from going and looking when you shouldn't. So it actually sort of kills two birds with one stone. I mean, not that I want to kill any birds. That <laughs> That's really interesting, Annie. Thank you very much for that. We're coming to an end of our session. And um, as I explained before, um, in this uh, decision, um, Making Under Uncertainty podcast series. We have asked two questions to our um, guests. And after reading your book, I realized that one of the questions, we were posting that question wrong because we were saying, can you give us an example of a bad decision that you have made or seen others make? And I have now realized that that's a very poor way of making that question. And what we should have been asking our guests is um, can you give us an example from a personal experience or someone else where you have seen a decision that ended, ended in a bad outcome? Yes. Because otherwise you're going to get the same answer anyway. So you might as well frame it properly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I actually opened my, I opened my book with that exercise. Yeah. And so, so that's the question. Can you give us an example of, of, of a bad decision that you've made or seen others made that ended in a bad outcome that was not due to bad luck? Oh gosh, how many? <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, there's like a billion poker hands I can think about, um, for sure. Uh, oh man, there are so many. This is really hard. <laughs> oh Lord. Um, it could be someone else. No, I mean, I, I'm just trying to think of a really good example for myself. Like, I, I don't know if you want one that's specifically poker, but um, first of all, I, I, I make terrible, I, I, I am actually not great at um, sort of recognizing how I'm going to feel in the future about something. So I, I'm actually pretty, I'm pretty solid on intertemporal choice, except that, except in this one way where when somebody asks me to do something, uh, I 
say yes way too much. And so I just have this constant problem of my schedule just being really out of control. And then like, I'm super tired and <laughs> I'm snapping at my kids. It's really, it's really just, and it, it, I know exactly what's going on is that I'm not really in touch with my future self, like on that day that I have all that stuff to do. Um, and I'm just sort of thinking about like, like the happiness I'm going to feel in the moment. You know, I have yeah. a lot of examples of bad decisions that I've made that, that have turned out well, for sure. Um, which I think is actually a really important category to examine. So I, just as an example, here's a bad decision that turned out really well for me, um, quitting academia and going and playing poker. Um, mm -hmm. When I think about my process and the decision, the decision was hor it was a horrible decision in the sense that I, I'm not, I, don't, I didn't really think it through. I wasn't really thinking about like what were the possibilities and what were the implications and what did I really want for my life and any of those things. I just kind of went off and did it and it happened to have turned out well, but I'm, a, I'm super horrified at that decision. I think it was an awful decision. So, um, you know, bad decisions that worked out poorly. It's just like every day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And the, the, the last question is, um, we are avid readers in my team, and we always ask people uh, if you've read something that's interesting that you can recommend to us. So yeah, there's a, a great book that just came out called Perfectly Confident by Don Moore, um, which is really fantastic. Um, you know, I think we hear a lot about overconfidence, um, and he's really talking about the need to calibrate your confidence. So he's exploring underconfidence and then he's exploring the different ways that overconfidence or underconfidence can um, express itself. So you can have like over precision, you can have over replacement, so on and so forth. So I, I just think that's like a super fantastic book. Uh, I love Range by, by David Epstein. Um, Maria Konnikova just came out with a book called um, The Biggest Bluff, which um, she, uh, my mentor, Eric Seidel, became her mentor also. And she went from writing at the New Yorker to like winning a tournament within a year of learning poker. And it's just a really fun journey. That's, you know, sort of a mix of memoir and then also really an exploration of, of uncertainty and the influence of luck in your life. Uh, and, you know, she was, she's a writer. I mean, she's a real writer. She's a, she, you know, she wrote for the New Yorker. She, she has mastermind the confidence game. Uh, and she just like her writing is so incredibly beautiful. So I would super, you know, definitely um, recommend that there's a few books on the horizon okay that, that i would i think people should really keep their eye out for can um, can you give us some names yeah so one is um morgan hausel yeah the psychology, book, the psychology of money. i think i've already read it uh literally every human being should read that book it's amazing he's another person who's just an, an, a really awesome writer and can really distill very complicated ideas down into really easy to digest narrative. Yeah. Um, and he just has so much to say that's like so deep about human yeah. nature. And the other one that I really wish that people would keep their eye out for, this isn't going to come out until spring of 2021, is a book called How to Change, which is okay. uh, Katie Milkman. Mm -hmm. um, and this is really like about like, how do you change habits? Like, how do you actually think about how you might implement that? When is the right mm -hmm. time to do it? How would you go about it? so on and so forth, that I think is just really deep into behavioral economics in a way. And she's, she's so incredibly smart. And she's also an amazing writer. Like, I have all this writer jealousy <laughs> um, about people. So that, that's, a, that's a big list. But um, 
No, that's a great list. And obviously, the, so the, the biggest bluff people can get right now, actually, I think my book is, this should be a week out. So Morgan Housel's book will already be out. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just like, it's also the other thing is it's such an easy read. You could sit down in an afternoon and read it. Yeah, yeah. It's so yeah. good, and he's so freaking smart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 his blog is very good. The, the piece that he puts, yeah, it's so good. But it's, it's so, so, so good. right. Yeah, I yeah, love yeah. his blog so much. I thank you very much. So much. I, I hope that was okay. Uh, that you enjoyed your time with us. Oh no, it was it was great actually. Yeah.